Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. Hi, welcome to the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Minkin. I am a pediatrician and proud member of the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. And I'm really excited and honored to be here today with Dr. Dampy Halpern. Hi. Dr. Halpern is board certified in internal medicine and pediatrics. She works as a hospitalist for Brigham and Williams, Women's, Brigham and Women's Hospital and a hospital, is a hospitalist pediatric emergency room physician for Boston Children's Hospital. She also is actively involved in teaching medical students and international physicians through Harvard Medical School and Alpert Medical School of Brown University. She lives with her husband and two daughters in Sharon, Massachusetts. So we are going to talk. Welcome, first of all. Thank you. <laughs> Happy to have you. We are going to talk about what I call the new kid on the block for the COVID vaccines that we, you know, we finally got used to the mRNA, I think. And we're moving on to a totally different kind of vaccine, the Johnson & Johnson, are also called the, that always confuses me, the Janssen, right? Is that how it's pronounced? I think so. I don't know. For me, it's always been a Johnson & Johnson, like the baby soaps. And I've been hearing them say Janssen. But anyway, all these J's. Um, so we're going to compare and contrast them. And we're going to try to be like as, you know, straightforward and transparent as we can. We're not, you know, I like this epidemiologist, his name is Dr. Natwar Barzev, and he always says, I'm not going to do hashtag vaccines. I'm not going to be a propaganda machine. And we're going to just talk and say it like it is. Um, I think it's really important, you know, for people to get good information and to feel that they can trust it, that we're not just promoting. Yeah, it, there's a lot of information about there and uh, out there in all directions, um, and it can be really confusing and trying to sift through it can be exhausting um, in an already exhausting year. So hopefully we can try and make some of this information a little bit clearer. Um, and then any questions, we'll have uh, live town halls that everyone's welcome to join. Yes, our first is April 11th. Um, and that's going to be exciting. So we will be promoting that and that people can hear about very soon. So the other thing I want to talk about is the so-called mutations, which you can explain why they're really variants and what, what that means, but most people know them by the mutations. There's the South African and the um, British ones that are most uh, talked about, and there's also, of course, the Brazilian and the New York, but I think we're going to focus on the South African and the yes. British ones as the most important to us right now. So, and of course, we're going to have to talk about how well the vaccines cover or, or how not well they cover them and what that means. So I'm going to give you a chance to talk and I'm going to say, please discuss the Johnson & Johnson vaccine from the very beginning, starting with um, how it works and how it's different than the other. Absolutely. Thank you. So, um, so the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which was FDA approved very recently within the past month it, and has very quickly gone into production um, and, and people have started getting vaccinated with it. Um, in a in a really impressive um, period of time, 
it works on the on a viral vector. And what that means is take is that you take a gene that's unique to COVID and inject it into a virus. And this is a virus that um, we've all seen, had probably had our kids sent home with at various points uh, called the adenovirus. And it's a virus that um, is really good for this purpose because it um, it's a familiar virus. We know it very well. It's it's something that we've seen for a very long time and they know its genome very well. And it's a virus that the body produces a really robust immune system to. And so they inject this, um, this, this piece of the COVID um, virus into the adenovirus. And then that is what is injected into somebody's arm when they are getting the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And where it goes from there is the um, adenovirus um, gets recognized by the cells, and this piece uh, and this um, this gene then gets then instructs the cells to make the spike protein for COVID. And it is this spike protein which is necessary to a trigger the immune system and b let COVID into the cells. So this spike protein is then is displayed on these on the body cells and that triggers the body to make specific antibodies so to SARS-CoV-2 so the adenovirus comes in to the body releases this specific um, gene unique to covid causes the body to make the spike protein um, and and display it on the surface of its cells and then the body then makes antibodies to SARS-CoV-2. So it's using your body's own mechanism of immunity to then go ahead and make your very own antibodies to the COVID-19 COVID or SARS-CoV-2. Um, this is a technology that has been studied since the 1970s with, um, with various clinical trials. And it wasn't until the Ebola outbreak um, recently in, in West Africa in the, in the past few years that it was actually used um, in clinical practice. They, in order to make um, vaccines against Ebola, they used this technology with, with adenovirus. So uh, it's not its first go around when it comes to COVID. We've used it before and it has been shown to be very safe why doesn't this virus make you sick? That's a great question. So first of all, um, the, it's important that they use not the typical adenovirus that we, that we see that gets passed around in daycares because that's too familiar to the body. The body is going to clamp down on that and then it will never have a chance to release the spike protein and then trigger this whole immune process. Uh, they use less familiar forms of the adenovirus or chimp aden or adenovirus that only affects chimps because that is um, because then the body will accept it and it's and then it, they will be able to trigger this immune process. It's also a virus that it has been denatured to the extent that it cannot really that it cannot cause infection. If we just take that, you know, and make that really crystal clear. That way, the reason this virus can't make you sick is it's not able to multiply. 
Exactly. Compare that to a regular viral infection. Say you get the common cold. What happens with the common cold? Where does that virus go? What does it do? So when you get the common cold, um, and when we say common cold, that constitutes a whole array of viruses. Um, <laughs> hmm? Coronaviruses. Coronavirus included. Um, so when you get the common cold, the, the virus needs to enter your cells and then um, integrate within your cells and take over your cells technology in order to replicate. A virus is not capable of replicating on its own. It can only replicate using your own, using its host cell, in this case, humans, using its host cells uh, replicating technology. So it takes over the, uh, the structures that your body typically uses to make your, to copy over your own protein and your own RNA and your own DNA and uses that to then make its own. So the difference would be, you know, the reason I'm, 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 I'm taking this to that, you know, level of explanation is because people have been concerned, well, okay, I finally understand that the mRNA doesn't incorporate into the genome, but there are people who are afraid that this one will. Right. So you really need to explain the difference between a replicating virus and a virus that can't replicate. Yeah, so this is this this virus cannot replicate. It is a virus that does not have its own replicating technology. The virus itself is not going into your cells. It is just this small piece of um, of genome that is going into your cells. It's just using the um, it's just taking a subway ride on this virus, so to speak. How do we know that it's not going to incorporate into our DNA? So it doesn't have the, the capability. It is not a virus that has the capability of going into somebody's DNA. That, those are viruses like HIV and other, and other um, viruses that are, are able to incorporate into DNA. We're very familiar with adenovirus. We've, it's been studied extensively, and that is not a property of adenovirus. It is incapable of doing so. Okay, so that's really, really good to know. So how safe is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? What do we know about its safety? That's, that's an excellent question. So the, the Johnson & Johnson um, uh, vaccine is, has been studied thus far. The clinical trials were upwards of 35,000 people, which is quite, quite a bit. It, it, it is similar to the studies that were done on the Pfizer and Moderna um, in terms of number of people. And it was shown to be very, very safe. Um, there were no uh, documented adverse effects um, in th that were serious requiring hospitalization. Um, and there, the most common, the most common um, adverse effects were ones that were more localized symptoms where you might expect some pain or some redness at the site of the vaccine, which you would typically expect with any, with any, vac with any vaccine. And that was about 50% of people, which is actually um, less than, than was seen with the Pfizer and Moderna. And then about half of the people, about 55% had one or more uh, systemic symptoms. And when we say systemic symptoms, we mean everything that runs the gamut from a fever to a headache to feeling a little run down. Um, so that number is actually considerably less than the um, Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, which those uh, ranged anywhere from 
about 60 to 85% as far as one or more systemic symptoms being experienced by vaccine recipients. Mm -hmm. And something very distinctive, of course, that we haven't said yet is that the Johnson & Johnson is only one dose. Exactly. How that even becomes That's the one dose vaccine. Uh, sorry, I missed that last part. I'm curious about how it became, how they decided to make it a one dose vaccine. So when they were doing that, when they were doing the studies, they were, their goal was ideally to do a uh, one dose vaccine because from a public health perspective, a one dose vaccine is much simpler, much easier. And if you can get similar or uh, effects from it, then much more practical for the world at large. Um, and so they are currently doing uh, clinical trials on a second dose of the Johnson & Johnson to see wh where that would take the vaccine and how that would um, uh, change, if anything, its, its efficacy. But uh, in the initial tr clinical trials, the, the one-dose vaccine was shown to be quite efficacious. It, in the US, it was, um, it was noted to be 75% after two weeks of administration. And after, um, and by that we mean that people were much less likely to get moderate or severe disease, which is what they were, which is what they were aiming for. Mm -hmm. And when we say moderate or severe disease, I really think it's important to discuss what that means. Mm -hmm. When they say moderate disease, they mean somebody getting a fever. They mean somebody coming down with, with um, somebody coming down with symptoms that would require in a non-COVID year than to miss work. Severe disease we typically think of as shortness of breath, um, extending to possible need for hospitalization. And when they looked at hospitalization, after two weeks of the, of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, um, it, it was up at 93.1%. So of 100 people of every 100 people in that 35,000 clinical trial, uh, only they, it was 90, they, they expected that it wasn't that seven of them would then be hospitalized. It was, if you take, compare them to a non-hospitalized group, they had a 93% less risk, less of getting, um, of getting hospitalized. Let me say that a little bit clearer. So if you take a large group of people, mm -hmm. you're minimizing their risk of being hospitalized by 93% after just two weeks of a, one of a one dose vaccine, which is from a public health perspective, mm -hmm. tremendous. And, in, and in, in terms of the individualized risk, tremendous as far as um, coming out of this pandemic and really increasing the immunity. But not only that, after a month, the, the COVID-associated hospitalizations among the, among the vaccinated group was none. There was nobody, nobody in that, um, in that group who after a month was hospitalized. We're talking about that 35,000 study. Group. Correct. So how can we compare that to Moderna and Pfizer? I mean, I want to take a step back and just talk about what Moderna and Pfizer, how they work just for a few minutes. Mm -hmm not assume everybody knows. Absolutely. So um, I'm married to a computer scientist. So I like to kind of, when I think of cell technology, I like to kind of compare it to computers. 
so if you kind of think of DNA as the hardware and the mRNA as the software, which is the temporary set of instructions, then proteins are like the apps. They're what make things get carried out. So mRNA um, in, the, in the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, which is the newer technology, the new kid on the block as far as and from a vaccine technology perspective, the mRNA enters the arm through the vaccine. It, it, is, it has been isolated from, from the uh, COVID virus um, and produced. It then enters the cells and uses the body's protein like we were talking about before to make this spike protein, which is what um, triggers this immune response from the body. Right. And again, does not get into your DNA. It does not get into your DNA. It is a it is a temporary set of instructions that basically is a shopping list for what the body should do um, and how how the body should go ahead and make these proteins. And um, and the body is making its own proteins. It's just using the mRNA as a guidebook of how. But the, the real difficulty with the mRNA vaccines, which makes them not honestly as practical um, for all populations, is right the cold storage requirement. Exactly, and that's the part that we haven't talked about yet. So it's not only that they require at this point in terms of how they've been studied to to vaccinations, but they also require they also have a, a very specific set of storage requirements that have made it the distribution, as people may have seen much more challenging um, and they need to be kept extremely cold and not so not just freezer cold sub-zero freezer cold whereas the Johnson and Johnson vaccine can be kept at fridge temperature which um, in terms of uh, getting this vaccine out to not just countries around the world but right here in the U.S it is very important to be able to do it because then it can be done at your doctor's office. Your yeah. doctor has, um, has refrigerators for vaccines. They, your doctor does not have sub-zero freezers. And this is because mRNA is just much more fragile than DNA. Correct, because it's this temporary uh, set of instructions. It, it is, as you said, fragile. It is not made to last. I don't know why that the Johnson and Johnson seems to have less side effects than the Moderna and Pfizer, but I have heard that. Yeah, so this is just in terms of what came out in the clinical trials and what people have reported. Um, can I give a specific answer as to the why of why people feel a little less rundown or may not have that day of fever? Um, I, I can't say exactly. I mean, a lot of people are having issues with their second. Correct. And if you think about it, that's in some ways the uh, show your immune system showing you that it's working. So while it may not be fun for that day, you can kind of be rest assured that your body is now recognizing um, what you're putting into it and responding to it appropriately in the way the body knows how. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't really want to give numbers comparing the Johnson and Johnson to the Moderna and Pfizer for a number of reasons. Um, and I'll say them straight out. One basic one is you probably don't have a choice. 
So it's not time to be making your pros and cons list. Correct. I'm going to say this now. We'll probably say it again at the end. You know, I mean, obviously we're not here to give medical advice. This does not constitute medical advice. Please ask your healthcare practitioner. But, but the best advice we could give as unofficial not medical advice is get the, vet, the vaccine that you can get. Exactly. And I agree with that 100%. Yeah, don't wait around. Whichever one you can get an appointment for, that is the best one for you. And whichever one you can get an, a, an appointment for sooner, that is the even better one for you. Because ultimately, our goal is to keep people out of the hospital, to keep people from suffering. And all of these vaccines have been shown to do so. Um, and been shown to do so not a little bit, but a lot of it. Right. And the other reason that's um, also very true is that we are comparing apples and oranges. When we're comparing the trials of the Moderna and Pfizer to the trials of the Johnson and Johnson, they were done at such different times because we have the mutations also known as variants. Yeah. So I do want to get into that and, and what Absolutely. that means. And it's funny because I feel like only in this year, year and a half, would we think of trials done a few months apart as being done in totally different time periods, but such is the nature of this new decade of 2020 where things change so rapidly. And um, Alyssa, I'm sure you've seen this in over the course of your year, the rapidity in which the medical knowledge has changed, right. where things are really changing at a rapid fire pace and something done at time point A, a few months later, it's hard to compare right. because we're at a totally different place. Right. So the point being that when those trials on the Moderna and Pfizer were done, they weren't dealing with the mutations. So they weren't even looking how well it covered the mutations. The real life data will show us that. Exactly. And that's why science doesn't, isn't done in a vacuum. It's constant trials. And these are going to be coming out for the next couple of years in terms of looking back and seeing who's gotten what and how they are doing and how hospitalizations have um, have. Uh, developed and the proof will be in the pudding. Right. So what do we know about these? We'll call them mutations. Chris, mm -hmm. And explain why you wanted to use the term variants. Yeah, we can leave that. For, I think, I think yeah. we can leave that for now. Um, so the, the mutations um, or the variants is the COVID um, virus basically struggling for its life. It's, it's trying to do its best to outpace us. And there are different ways that a virus will do that. Um, and the three classic ways are they will adapt to um, better invade a human host uh, and escape any antibodies that the host may have made. They will adapt to have a longer asymptomatic phase and thereby being able to infect more people before they know they're ill and stay home. And they'll also adapt to be able to live on um, more fomites or everyday objects. So what we're seeing with these two um, with these two mutations primarily is the first one that I've mentioned, where they've adapted um, to better invade the human host, which means that uh, everyone on their cells has this. Uh, I'll talk a little bit about um, pathophysiology, but just on the surface, has this receptor called ACE2, and it is that receptor that allows this uh, that allows the virus to uh, to invade into the cell. So, if you consider ACE2 as the lock on the cell, 
the spike protein, which is what we've been talking about until now, that is contained with, um, that is either contained within the adenovirus for the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, or we're, um, or we're producing it uh, with the mRNA vaccine. That is the key that allows the virus to enter the cell. So the spike protein is the key. The ACE2 receptor is the lock. Now, what the virus says is, what if I get a different key that um, allows the that allows me to enter, but doesn't get recognized to that doesn't get recognized by antibodies? That is the virus's goal because then, what your body has done until now, uh, it has to start again. That has not happened yet. That is what we don't want to happen. And we have not seen that that has happened. What has happened is certain um, changes in the, in the virus that allows it to shapeshift a little bit so that it can, it's still binding to the ACE2. It's still um, use, using the spike protein, but it's allowing it to uh, bind a little bit better, a little bit easier maybe escape the antibodies a little bit more. And that allows it to be more transmissible. Uh, if, it's, uh, if it's able to invade more people, then the, and then it's able to be passed from one person to another easily if they're not wearing masks or, have, or don't have antibodies. And so that is the worry when it comes to these mutations. What about reinfections? Do we find that with the mutations, people who've had COVID are no longer immune? So right now it's a little too early to answer that question and it's one that's being actively studied. But so far it seems that the, the changes aren't significant enough that for the most part, if somebody has had COVID before or has been vaccinated, that the, the body adapts and um, the antibodies adapt and they're still able to uh, mount an immune response to the virus as a whole. Uh, what, and what we're trying to determine with ongoing studies is to what extent is it as effective and how long that lasts for. And that's an ongoing area of research. Do we know how long natural immunity lasts? Because you know, a, a very common question is, I've had COVID, why should I get the vaccine? It's a really good question. It's an excellent question. And so your body doesn't give off signals saying, okay, immu my immunity is, is waning. It's now below the threshold. And for some people, it lasts a long time. For some people, it lasts not as long a time. And we really don't know who, which person is which. Uh, we can say pretty definitively that 90 days um, is typically the number that we use after a COVID infection. The likelihood of being reinfected with COVID, which as it is, is quite low, is extremely low to the, um, to the point of negligible. And so we say in that 90 days, people tend to be very well protected from the antibodies that were produced during their initial COVID infection. We can't really say at this time what happens beyond those 90 days. That requires ongoing studies, ongoing areas of research. And what I would say to somebody who's had COVID recently is first of all, hope you're doing well. Uh, but second of all, 
Um, I would still recommend getting the, the COVID vaccine when you're eligible for it. And the fact that you've had COVID recently does not make you ineligible for the vaccine because why take that risk that your immunity is waning? Give yourself a booster, give yourself increased antibodies um, and, the, and increase that length of time that your body is producing, that those antibodies will be around for. You also, um, you also don't know to how your antibodies compare to those produced during, a, during an a immune response how the ones that produce during an immune response compared to ones produced during a, during a vaccine. And so there have not been shown to be any downsides to getting the COVID shot soon after, soon after an infection. And I can only see the upsides from here. I know some people check their antibodies. Do we know that those antibodies that they're measuring are those proof of protection? So unfortunately, no, we don't, we don't know how uh, antibody numbers, the number that you receive when you get the antibody test, how that is affected, um, how that correlates with an immune response, whether if your number, I'm going to make up numbers, but say your, your antibody number is 200 um, and somebody else is a thousand. We can't say that you're less immune than the other person because it's, these tests are too new um, and a little too imprecise at the moment to really make that equation. Mm -hmm. And as all, I also understand it, um, not all antibodies are equally neutralizing. Not all antibodies will fight the infection. Also, different tests are measuring different kinds of antibodies, which is important, by the way, if you feel compelled to get an antibody test after a vaccine, which I personally wouldn't do. I don't think it tells you anything um, that you really need to know, but um, there are some measures that test a different portion, the nucleocapsid, and then there are some that do the spike protein. And if you are getting a vaccine, you will only have antibodies for the spike protein and you will get yourself very frustrated if you get a nucleocapsid study instead of the spike protein. Yes, so I would definitively say I do not recommend getting an antibody test mm -hmm. to check to see if your vaccine worked um, because I think it will only create confusion and won't necessarily give you any useful information other than the peace of mind that you have gotten the vaccine and your body is doing its job. Right. Do we have any idea of how natural immunity compares to vaccine immunity in terms of say, if we know that natural immunity can last as little as three months, right? How long does vaccine immunity last? Do we know? So we have the history of vaccines to guide us. This is a new vaccine with some new technology, uh, but there we we have, we've seen different vaccines over the years. There's the vaccines for measles, which after age four, you can, you're considered to have lifelong immunity. And then there's the vaccines for flu, where flu is changing every year and we get, um, and our body's trying to keep up and we have constantly changing immune responses to the flu. And we need, that's why we need to get vaccinated every year against the flu. And so we, at the moment, we're, we think COVID will probably land somewhere in the middle. Mm 
-hmm. where you might need a booster every now and again, similarly, similar to how we do for um, things like tetanus or things like pneumonia, where you do get boosters um, from time to time. And I can, and what the current uh, discussion is, is that COVID vaccine will probably land somewhere in that category. Uh, it would be nice if it gave us lifelong immunity, but I, I don't expect that to happen. Um, but as we had talked about earlier, COVID is a much more stable virus than the flu. It is not changing as rapidly as the flu does. And it's not expected to change as rapidly as the flu does. So hopefully we will not need it every year. Right. And it's good to see that we're getting better immune responses to the COVID vaccines than we have to the flu vaccine. Correct. So big fear. I deal every year with people turning down the flu shot. And likewise, tell people it's very safe, but is it our most effective shot? No. Correct. It is, uh, and we still think that it's ideal to get it because something is better than nothing and it, the immunity builds on itself. But we fully acknowledge that there are definitely years where it's better and years where it's worse. Because it's such a shape shifter, because it changes. Exactly. It's, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky virus. Right. Can you explain, you explained to me before, but can you tell our listeners why the flu is different than the COVID in terms of how rapidly it changes? Sure. So uh, flu um, has, is, as we said, a very unstable virus. It is constantly trying to replicate itself and invade and invade quickly. And it doesn't have the same um, spell check mechanisms that other viruses have, including COVID. So because it doesn't have that, um, if, if you consider um, if you consider the flu, like somebody writing a term paper, it's going to come out with a whole bunch of errors. COVID, like a lot of other viruses, has this spell check mechanism where it uh, then goes back to correct some of the errors that it's made along the way. And so one COVID virus after replication is very, very similar, um, if not identical to the one before it. Uh, there can always be errors that get entered in along the way. Spell check isn't perfect, but it makes for a much cleaner, a much neater, a much easier process of replication and that, and also fewer variants or mutations. It's interesting because it seems like there's this almost intentional part to the variations where it's trying to evade us and then an unintentional where it's just sloppy. Exactly. <laughs> sloppy and tricky. The COVID is just tricky. Yes. So how well do these vaccines we have work against these variant mutations? So that's an ongoing area of, of research. I, um, for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, as we mentioned, they were not studied when these um, when these when these mutations were in circulation um, or pr prominently in circulation. The Johnson and Johnson vaccine was, and so the uh, Johnson and Johnson um, test results, uh, the numbers that I had mentioned earlier, as far as um, preventing any hospitalizations after a month, that was including with the variants being circulated around the world. The Pfizer and Moderna, there's ongoing research that is being that is being done to see that our hunch that they will still be effective is um, is going to play out. 
but it's that's why we were talking about how it's difficult to compare the numbers of the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine to the numbers of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine because they were done at different vi virology time points. You know what I'm wondering, say about a place like Israel, which has done a huge amount of vaccines while having a lot of mutations. Do we have any information about, say, the Pfizer from Israel? So, yeah, so um, Israel, if I'm not mistaken, has pretty much only used Pfizer. And, um, and they have, as far as I know, I haven't been following the Israeli data super closely, but from the, what the, from what I did read, they have really not seen cases um, being ho hospitalized who have been vaccinated, who have been in that. And when we say vaccinated, we mean the, uh, in that two to four week era after you've received the, the second dose. So um, before you've received that second dose, your body is still working on making this, the antibodies, it takes some time. So you're, when you're looking at the efficacy of the vaccine, you're really looking for that time period after they've received the, the full shot. That's a really important point because I've heard plenty of stories about people who got sick after their, particularly their second, their first Pfizer. Um, I mm -hmm. think people had 50% effective with one dose. Yeah, um, I've read anywhere from 50 to 60% effective because you're some, as we said earlier, people's bodies are different. Some work faster, some work slower. Some people may have been exposed to the virus and then didn't know it and got the vaccine two days later, but there, the virus was already replicating with um, inside them and had a head start and it, and you can't really, and so it's hard to com compare. That's why we look at the time period after the vaccine. Right. Right. And, and I'm sure there are cases after the second vaccines too. Absolutely. And I think we have to start talking about what is our goal here? Is the goal to eradicate any possible case of COVID? No. <laughs> We'd like it to be, but I don't I would, think it's realistic, especially with, with these mutations. I think if we are being realistic with ourselves, the goal with these vaccines would be to make the, uh, this coronavirus similar to the coronaviruses I've been seen in all my pediatric cases up until 2020, that you make it into a common cold that is that for the, the vast majority of people, is a cold. There are going to be those who unfortunately do from time to time get quite sick, need to miss work or God forbid be hospitalized. But we don't shut down the world because of the common cold. It's interesting that you say that because the arguments of people who are more hesitant about the vaccine is why should I get a vaccine that could pose risks to me for something that's like the common cold? And that's, and we have similar conversations about the flu mm -hmm. every year, where for a lot of people, the flu is a tough day or a tough couple of days, but you and me, we both see plenty of people who are severely ill from the flu. I, and in fact, 2019 was actually a particularly um, bad year for the flu. And I, I can tell you in my hospital, we saw lots of people and not just 
people who are elderly and not just people who are immunocompromised, people who are young and healthy, getting very sick from the flu. And so the reason we do that is because you never know what, how you, how you, how you might end up. You can try and roll the dice with probability, but you never, you never know how your body's going to react to a particular infection one day, even if you exercise, eat right, and have no medical history. Uh, sometimes people get unlucky and get very sick. Right, and we're seeing that unfortunately, I don't know if this COVID is new. I mean, we're definitely not the level of thing as a common cold. I mean, that's the short answer is yeah. that we've lost over half a million people just in the United States alone. Correct. My goal would be to make it like the common cold, not that it is like the common cold. That I want to make it, it crystal clear for the people who are saying, hey, I'd rather roll the dice with COVID. Mm-hmm. That might not be a good gamble. It isn't a good gamble. I don't believe that it is. Um, and again, we don't yet have studies on children, so we're not talking about vaccinating children, but it is studied down to the um, young adults and older teens. And there would, would be a very reasonable question, well, why should my young adult take a vaccine that we, you know, is new um, when they're likely to just have common cold symptoms. And that it is a different risk benefit calculation. Absolutely. For that age. And, um, and we do that risk benefit calculation for lots of vaccines um, for the same reason that we vaccinate all pregnant women with pertussis. And usually we're very protective of that population. Um, and we vaccinate all their household contacts because most people, pertussis or otherwise known as whooping cough, is not a big deal, but can make little babies very sick. Um, and so if from, we don't always vaccinate just for ourselves. Um, and when we're and when we're looking at vaccines that are have not been shown to have um, and uh, significant side effects. And the science does not uh, point to them having any long-term side effects. It would be very, very difficult based on how they worked, which we had talked about, to imagine how they would cause long-term side effects that the risk-benefit ratio seems to come out in favor of everybody getting vaccinated to prevent anybody from getting severely ill. Right. And when you mention long-term side effects, because a lot of people have like, we don't know long-term side effects. First of all, most side effects from the vaccine are shortly after. And second of all, we don't really have a mechanism for long-term side effects, particularly from these vaccines. Mm -hmm. And number three, and this is the most important one, is you have to compare the disease versus the vaccine, not nothing versus the vaccine. You know that even young people can become long haulers with COVID and have long-term chronic symptoms. And I've seen, and I've seen many of them. I take care of people throughout the age span, throughout the lifespan. And I have seen many uh, young people, young healthy people get very sick and were very surprised because they they thought that they would never be able to um, get this sick and that it was really just an old person's illness, but that is really not the case. And as we had talked about earlier, the the vaccines do not incorporate themselves into your DNA, which means they are not ongoing into um, your DNA and not being replicated and not um, and not incorporating themselves, meaning the likelihood of them 
then creating long-term changes in your DNA or, or things people have talked about, concerns for infertility or, um, or risks for pregnancies. We just cannot think of a scientific mechanism for that to happen. Right, and on the flip side, we know with COVID, and unfortunately we're seeing even more lately, I don't know if it has to do with the mutations, we're seeing more and more problems with pregnant women you know, getting very sick. Unfortunately, some of them you know, have lost the babies, have died in terrible, terrible tragedies. Yes, I've taken care of, unfortunately, many very sick pregnant women uh, with COVID, which is why when I was, and I um, am currently pregnant, when it, I was given the opportunity for the vaccine, I rushed to take it in the middle of a snowstorm. Thank you. That's a great advertisement. And again, we can't you know, provide medical advice and definitely talk to your healthcare professional. But we did a whole podcast, by the way, just on fertility rate related and pregnancy related with um, Dr. Denise Moses, who um, had COVID while pregnant and did um, was nursing when she had the vaccine. So we did go into um, more detail. So people who are interested in more on that can listen to um, that separate episode. Um, I want to segue to a, um, a totally, well, not completely different, but what other people are asking is, okay, I got the vaccine. Now, what can I do? What is coming? Can I have a big test up better? What can I do? Exactly. And so I just preface this by saying, it's not a matter of a right and wrong answer here, because I think different people have different risk benefit um, um, calculations that they make. Um, they have very unique situations, um, and so it can be very personal, but I'm going to let you give your opinion, and I might just chime in. Absolutely, and when people in my community and patients ask me that question, now what? I talk to them about how there's no one-size-fits-all approach. Um, many people have seen the CDC guidelines that ha- came out um, last week, and they and just to review them quickly, the CDC guidelines talked about how somebody who is fully vaccinated, and by fully vaccinated, we mean, as we mentioned earlier, two weeks after either their second dose of vaccine for the Pfizer and Moderna, or two weeks after they received the Johnson and Johnson because it's a one-shot uh, vaccine. So those are the people who are considered fully vaccinated according to the CDC, those people, can then um, be can then hang out, have it, have a meal with, have a play date with. Well, uh, I guess we're not doing children, so no play dates. <laughs> but um, but have a gathering with a people who are also fully vaccinated without wearing a mask, or with unvaccinated people from one other household. So for example, if um, if one couple who's fully vaccinated is going to um, visit their unvac- unvaccinated relatives who all live in the same house, then that is considered to be low risk because the unvaccinated people are all already all exposed to each other. And the only new people they are taking in are people who are, who are already vaccinated, who we think are, well, we can't say for sure 100% that they will not, that they cannot transmit the virus. We think the likelihood of that happening is extremely low. Um, 
So the guidance I say is to is to base your decisions on the highest risk unvaccinated person in the room. And so if for whatever reason, your 80 year old grandmother has not been vaccinated yet, then A, take her to get vaccinated and B, base your decisions on her risks. If there's somebody who has been, who is immunocompromised, base your decisions on that person if they have not yet been vaccinated. If they have been vaccinated, that changes the equation. Then you move to the next. Well, I, I do want to say one thing though, that there are some people who may not mount as good an immune response and someone who's immune compromised or someone who's older. Um, although I did hear good data that with this particular vaccine, they, they seem to be seeing good immune response even in the oldest cohorts, I believe. But in general, there is a principle of immunosenescence, right? Meaning that the older you get, you know, once you're elderly, your immune response may not be as, you know, as strong. Yes. So I do think that when you're making these decisions, it may not just be for the most vulnerable unvaccinated person, it may be for the most vulnerable vaccinated person. Which brings me to the next piece of the CDC guidelines. Thank you for for clarifying that, Um, which is why we're still not recommending a going into public places without masks um, and without some of the other things that we've been doing to keep safe in this past year, like hand washing and um, and uh, not being on top of one another. And also still trying to avoid um, medium and large gatherings. So what those, so the large weddings that um, many in the Jewish community are used to, it still might not be, quite be the time for that, mm-hmm. even if a lot of people there are going to have been vaccinated because nothing is 100%. And still, we still need some time. We need some time to see how everything plays out. And for people's uh, antibodies and immune responses to become more robust and to reach more members of the community. And as we said earlier, when we were talking about mutations, the best way of preventing the further mutating of the virus is to decrease the amount of virus circulating. Uh, The less virus that's circulating, the less chance it has to be able to mutate um, and turn into a virus that evades our immune responses even easier. Right, and I've heard that it's a race between these mutations and the vaccine. Mm -hmm. So hoping people listen to this and, you know, we can answer questions, you can email us. And I'm happy to respond to any questions people may have. Thank you, thank you, thank you you so much for doing this with me. Thank you, it's been good. (laughs) Thank you. Happy to take your Passover. Yes, and good luck with with the next week and a half until it starts. (laughs) Be well. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A, dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.